Charting Toward Intimacy covers mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey there, welcome to Charting Toward Intimacy, where we're expanding the natural family planning conversation. I'm your host, Ellen Holloway. All right, we are welcoming back Emily Frazee. I'm so excited to have you back, Emily. Thanks for having me back on. I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) I'm just going to do this like on a six-month rotation, just like bring you back every six (laughs) months. Well, that sounds a bit like I'll probably have something like big to talk about about every six months. I feel like that's the way that fertility goes. It's like you make a new discovery and then it's like, all right, let's talk about this. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. Well, and I just think, I think you have such great insights. um, And so I'm really excited to talk about this particular topic. So we're talking today about when abstinence is really hard. And Emily has been not silent on this topic, um, on her, uh, Instagram and her blog. Um, and I think it's really important to talk about because abstinence is really hard. I think you have, um, you have a blog post out. That's like, it's called like the great NFP turnoff or something like that. And I loved it. And it was just like, (laughs) yes, this is like so spot on right now because it is, it's a huge turnoff. The second we mention oh, hey, also, if you do this, like it's got all these great benefits, but also you're going to not have sex with your spouse for a couple of weeks. Right. <laughs> or or well, longer, or it works for a period of time. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But I, I think it's interesting because it's, it's not so much that you abstain from sex. Because if you think about it, we're abstaining from sex right now, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> like we abstain from sex all the time. It's just, I think that we are particularly averse to the idea that we have to abstain for a set amount of time and that that kind of sucks the the spontaneity out of your sex life because obviously the only good sex you can possibly have is spontaneous sex, you know, anyway. Clearly. Um, <laughs> right. It's So, I mean, I, I think that that's kind of, it's what it is, is like, you know, we, we, we have spouses who travel for work or we get sick or we have to take care of sick kids or, you know, we're super stressed out about something or we're in the middle of a move or there's all kinds of reasons that we have to abstain, right? Like Mm -hmm. that, you know, sex is just not going to happen. I think that it's just when you have a pre-prescribed window that this is not happening, that's where we're like, oh, okay, wait, no, no, I will not abstain. And it's like, okay, but let's put it in perspective a little bit here. Like we actually abstain a lot more than we have sex. It's just the reason for it. (laughs) That's a really, that's such a good point, right? To, to kind of keep that in mindset too, of like, yeah, we have a lot less sex than, than having sex. Like, you know, we spend most of our day. Right. Not, not having, having sex. sex. <laughs> not having sex. I mean, God bless you if you are spending most of your day having sex, but you know, we're not on a Game of Thrones set. So I don't think that's going to be most of us. <laughs> Hopefully not. I mean, we have jobs, we have kids, we have right. stuff to do. <laughs> right. Other um, than us. Anyway. <laughs> well, I think, I think, also your point in that, like 
when, when it's, it's almost like somebody else is telling us we're not allowed to have sex. Right. Right. Um, when actually it it is your own body. Um, but it's, it's viewed culturally, I think as, um, oh, well, the church is telling me I can't have sex. And so how how dare a bunch of old white men talk to me about when I can and can't have sex. I don't want the church in my bedroom. It's like, well, a lot of things show up in your bedroom way worse than the church. So yep. <laughs> I think I'd rather have God in my bedroom than my 18 month old. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. That's, that's a thruple I can get behind. Okay. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with those. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. So, okay. What has been your overall feeling toward abstinence? <laughs> yeah. Overall, I hate it. Um, <laughs> But then, I mean, I have a general attitude towards, I have that general attitude towards all self-denials. So I'm not singling abstinence out by any stretch. Uh, But (laughs) at the same time, like, you know, if I'm honest, which I like to be honest, um, reluctant obedience has kind of cultivated a wisdom as it tends to do. I'm not saying I'm wise, but I'm reluctantly wise, if anything. (laughs) And, um, And I can understand that, you know, abstinence helps me to remember that my husband is a human being, not just an apparatus for making me feel really good, you know, not even just sexually, but like emotionally and mentally. Like I, um, my husband brings me a lot of joy and a lot of pleasure and a lot of like really good feelings just in the way that he talks to me. Like the other night we had a really good conversation where he was, um, offering me just his support for, you know, the work that I do with fan base and total wine. And he was like, you know, I think you're doing really good work. And I, I want to, and I was just like, well, hot dang babe. Like, whew. <laughs> um, but you know, we, we don't talk about like how, um, abstinence is hard for women. Cause I, I don't know, I, I guess we just don't really like admitting that a healthy woman has a healthy libido, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, like if a woman's hormones are functioning properly, abstaining during the fertile window is hard because that's when her like biology wants sex the most. Like her body is like, like hormonally, chemically, her body is like, make a baby. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and you know, all of that estrogen has to just fall asleep next to a whole lot of testosterone and act like it's all cool. And it's like, (laughs) "Mm okay, that's a, that's not an easy thing, but you know, uh, back to the purpose of marriage here. Um, (laughs) my, my husband can make me feel really good. You know, like I was saying about a a lot of things when he supports me and encourages me and compliments me and like, you know, I thrive on all that stuff, but I'm not married to him because he makes me feel good or vice versa. Mm -hmm. We're married because we're trying to help each other come become holy. Of course, the good feelings are there to, to foster unity, right? Um, there's kind of this misconception that, you know, especially because we have like, you know, our culture is just steeped in eroticism. We kind of have this knee jerk against pleasure, but, um, pleasure is something that God made and, and it's very important in relationships, fostering unity. Think about when you were dating your spouse, like what was it that drew you to this person and and kept you with this person? It was because you had a good time together. There was mutual enjoyment of each other's company. That was a pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, that's all, that's all really good. It's just, you know, you can't hang your hat on that because those good feelings are, they ebb and flow. Right. And so they give us something to remember 
and to look forward to again when, when times get tough, um, but they're not just kind of the end all be all. Um, so abstinence, you know, if you kind of look at it within the construct of, of what the church teaches about sex, like abstinence for the purpose of avoiding pregnancy makes sense, even mm-hmm. though it sucks, you know, it upholds the church teaching that sex is always, always about both union and procreation. And if we ever try to separate those two by making one of those purposes primary over the other, whether union or procreation, we run into serious problems, right? So abstinence for avoiding pregnancy is, it's really an all or nothing attitude. Either I give all of myself, including my fertility to my husband and sex, and he gives all of himself, including his fertility to me, or I get none of it. Right. So that forces us to maintain a very healthy relationship with sex and to maintain that pleasure is a means of promoting unity, not the end goal of sex in and of itself. Exactly. Well, and that thought thought process is really very intuitive, too, of Mm -hmm. just really understanding the two equally primary parts of sex. And I think on this podcast, we talk about this a lot that. Um, what you just said, sex is for unity and procreation. When you elevate one of those over the other, you destroy the act itself. And and sex is a beautiful, life-giving um, creation of God's right. uh, design. And, and he wants it to exist and he wants it to be good. He wants us all to have good sex lives. Um, he invented but- sex and he invented <laughs> pleasure. Like these are all parts of parts of, you know, the things that God has given to us to, to, to know, love and serve him and to know each other. Right. Exactly. Well, and, and we wouldn't be able to continue to exist as humans if we didn't have sex, because that's one of the primary purposes of sex is uh, procreation. (laughs) Right. The continuation of the species. (laughs) Um, but that's not the only reason, you know, right. that, that, uh, unity part, the pleasure part is also so important. Right. Um, and I think that if you, we can kind of, especially like in Catholic conversations, you know, we, we kind of pendulum swing away from birth control and we, we do overemphasize the procreative aspect of sex and, that frankly makes it utilitarian. If mm-hmm. the primary function of sex is to make babies, that doesn't really put it above, that doesn't really make it a, a sacramental thing, right? Which it is. Right. Um, it puts us on the same level as animals and sex becomes instinctive, like just a drive to perpetuate the species and nothing more, which obviously that's not what it is, but that's why you have to have the balance of the two. Right, exactly. And yeah, when when you separate the two, you take out the unity part um, with something like insemination too, then Mm -hmm. you can really clearly see how you're destroying the act. And that, that is no different than, well, I mean, it is different in a lot of ways, but, um, in essence, it's no different than elevating the, uh, procreative part just mentally and saying, this is the only reason that I should be having sex. So, um, those are important things to keep in mind too. And so, so basically we're just trying to say like, the unity is good. It is really, really good to desire your spouse. Um, and that's what makes NFP really difficult sometimes is that good desire that we have. 
<laughs> right. Exactly. And just how to keep it, you know, because we live in a fallen world, it's like we have the ability to take those good things and, and make them bad. So it's just, it's about maintaining that framework through which you can, you can wrestle with those things constructively mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, and deal with the, the messy parts of, of being a human being in a fallen world. <laughs> okay. So Emily, can you tell me about a time? When would you say was the time you experienced a season of difficult abstinence? Yeah. So there's been a few different, uh, difficult seasons for different reasons. So, um, when we first got married, I had been told that we'd only need to abstain for like a week tops in marriage prep, like, Oh, oh just like six, seven days. And then hello, honeymoon effect. And of course, I'm shaking my head over here. <laughs> right. I, look, I, I bang my head over here. Um, <laughs> But, you know, because of my cycle length, and this is something that I discovered later on, that it's actually the amount of time that you have to abstain is, is more about cycle length. It doesn't matter what method you use. Um, if your cycle length is less than 28 days, you're going to have to abstain between 10 to 12 days. If your cycle length is more than uh, 30 days, you're probably looking at two plus weeks, mm-hmm. um, which is what we ended up doing. Like, um, according to our protocols, like we were having to abstain for two weeks. But because I had the wrong expectations, we broke the rules because I thought the amount of abstinence was wrong and that I was depriving my husband. And well, that's not right. So no surprise, like we ended up uh, pregnant three months into marriage with our first kid. And then um, so that was that was difficult because, you know, it was like, oh, well, this should have been easy, but it's not easy. What are we doing wrong? Nothing. Um, just <laughs> nothing. Cold. You're normal. You have a right. normal range. <laughs> right. Um, but after my daughter was born, she was born via C-section cause she was full breech. Um, you know, we needed to avoid a pregnancy for nine months in order to attempt to V back with a subsequent pregnancy. And I put so much pressure on myself mm. to learn a, a, a whole new method. Cause we switched methods. Um, we ended up switching to Creighton, which was like the worst possible fit for us, which we didn't <laughs> know. Um, And I put so much pressure on myself to make myself sexually available to my husband because my doctor told me at my postpartum checkup that, and I quote, men have needs. Um, When she asked me about what method my birth control was going to be. And when I said NFP, that's where she was like, okay, let me just tell you the facts because I've been married for 20 years and I will just tell you men have needs. Those are her exact words. Um, And so, and I'm like, you know, six weeks postpartum, I'm sleep deprived. Nursing was like, horrible for us. Like, and I was just completely emotionally exposed and vulnerable. And so I took her words very much to heart and I projected that onto my husband. And so, um, because we were not confident with the method we were using and because I just felt like I owed my husband sex, basically, um, again, not based on anything that he said, (laughs) yeah, we were little pregnant. caveat here again, that conversation right. can be really, really helpful. Oh yeah. That was a hard learned lesson. But anyway, so we were pregnant with our second seven months after our first was born. So that was an automatic repeat C-section. Um, and that was such a huge blow, you know, because it was so stressful and we invested mm-hmm. so much time, so much money and a crap ton of my own tears into trying to do this quote unquote right and remain faithful And it felt like it was all for nothing. So with those two situations, you know, abstinence was made difficult because of unrealistic expectations. And because I didn't understand how fertility was shared. 
you know, I was told like you share fertility because you ch- share the chart. And it's like, okay, I know like maybe five husbands who think <laughs> that keeping the chart is cool. Um, and they're all engineers. <laughs> yeah, my <laughs> husband's they- an engineer. He enjoys uh, being able to interpret <laughs> the chart himself. They love the data. Fantastic. Data. They're like, this is great. Uh, yeah. But in the event that your husband is not an engineer like mine, they don't like it. Like the majority of husbands. <laughs> majority of husbands. There you go. So uh, yeah. But I, so I thought, I had thought the, the amount of abstinence um, and like interpreting the chart and all that was my fault. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's my fertility that I'm charting. Right. What I eventually realized was, and I don't know why anybody didn't feel the need to make this obvious because it's obvious, um, was that fertility is shared because men are always fertile. Mm -hmm. They're always, unless there is a fertility issue, they're always fertile. Once I understood that, that fertility is a shared responsibility in this way, then I realized that my fertile window is our, is our combined fertile window. And our decision to avoid a pregnancy is one that we make and we bear together. It's not my fault. It's our combined fertility. Um, And so that made abstinence so much easier, knowing that this truly was a shared burden. You know, that and two surprise pregnancies and traumatizing births. I mean, it kind of, <laughs> you're like, don't want to do this again you're right like, now. Nope, I definitely don't want to get pregnant right now. I am good with rolling over and going to sleep with my estrogen <laughs> buzzing in my head. It's all good. Um, yes. But now, so now we're actually in a, in a different phase entirely. Um, we're actually, we've actually, like for the past year, we've actually sort of been trying to have another baby, um, but it didn't happen. Um, you know, we were kind of like a little nervous considering our past history still, but, you know, we agreed to start breaking rules, um, <laughs> and still, and still nothing happened. Um, we, we broke some rules. <laughs> um, and so I, but I had noticed that there was some things that were off in my cycle that pointed to, you know, a couple of possibilities, um, of like hormonal imbalances and so on. And so I realized I needed to figure out what was going on not just to achieve a pregnancy, but also to sustain a healthy pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, cause you know, if your hormones are off at the beginning of a pregnancy, you know, depending on what hormone imbalance is going on, you know, you could be at risk of miscarriage and so on. Um, and so my symptoms point to a few different possibilities um, that I'm in the process of ruling out is high estrogen, possibly PCOS. And um, <laughs> a third one that I just found out about recently, it's called, and get ready for this word. It's called a uterine isthmusial. Whoa. Yeah. That's a big one. That's a big one. Um, I've never heard that before. I hadn't either. So I, and I wanted to just take a minute to share about this because I hadn't heard about it either. And, you know, I just, it's worth kind of like sharing just a teensy little bit about this. So it's an isthmusial is, uh, and I'm reading from a website that I'll share with you. You can put in your show notes. Um, is a a niche or defect on the internal wall of the uterine cavity at the site of a C-section scar. So basically what happens is if there is an issue with the suturing um, from a C-section, it can cause an isthmusial. So what it does is, is it traps menstrual blood in the, basically in the uterine lining at the site of the scar. And that leads to an inflammation of the uterine lining, which thins 
the scar significantly. So you're at a higher risk of miscarriage and uterine scar rupture. Mm-hmm. Um, it also create, it, it basically makes the, uh, uterus inhospitable to implantation and get this. It also kills sperm. Oh my gosh. Right. Flipping crazy. Like what, what is this? So anyway, this so is I'm actually crazy. Yeah. In like nuts. Um, and so the symptoms that I have, you know, basically like my cycles, like I've got, there's no, I mean, there's obviously like a hormonal imbalance because I have a lot of, um, spotting postmenstrual spotting, which is, which is never normal. Um, it's just a matter of like what, what the cause, figuring out what the cause mm-hmm. of that is. Um, but that's, uh, postmenstrual spotting and, um, infertility are two of the biggest indications of a uterine isthmocele. So, yeah. So I'm in the process of looking for that. So now, now that I know that that is a potential risk and I'm in the process of getting evaluated for that and the, the link that I'm going to share with you, if any woman's listening to this and is interested in digging into this more, uh, the website I'm going to share with you is actually, um, a, it's to the website for a NAPRO doctor who specializes in um, helping to diagnose and treat isthmuseals. Um, and he does telemed evaluations. He's located in Missouri, but he does telemed evaluations. So I'm actually setting That's up fantastic. that. So, yeah. So any woman who is in that boat, um, just know that that's going to be in there. But anyway, so all of that to say, <laughs> sorry for the tangent. Um, <laughs> we are, we are switching back to trying to avoid pregnancy because, you know, like strict trying to avoid pregnancy, like no mm-hmm. more breaking rules because this is, if this is a possibility, we need to rule it out because that would, that would be, you know, a very, very risky pregnancy. Um, you know, it could potentially co- uh, cost the life of my child or even mm-hmm. myself, like absolute worst case scenario. And, um, you know, I, I have to be, I'm called to be a steward of what God has given me and God has given me my husband and he's given me two living children. And, um, you know, that's my first priority, not, future potential children, you know, my, my fertility and my health. Yes. And that's what, you know, I'm working on treating right now. Um, but it, it, you know, so abstinence is difficult now because we want another baby, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, the risks are just too high and, uh, it sucks because estrogen really loves testosterone, man. If I have high estrogen, like, mm. <laughs> which is, which is one of the possibilities, uh, you know, just eesh. Yeah. No fun. No bueno. That just, that just makes it even harder. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about how, um, you know, at first it was kind of just like breaking rules. Um, and when, when abstinence kind of extended for longer than you expected. And it was like, mm-hmm. well, you know, I just, I, I must be wrong. I must be wrong in charting. So, um, I'm just gonna forget the, forget the rules and, um, yeah, we're just going to have sex and like, it's going to be fine because these people are obviously crazy. <laughs> oh man. So what have you found most helpful except for not breaking the rules. Uh, what have you found most helpful to do with your spouse when abstinence seems particularly difficult? Yeah. Well, breaking the rules did help, but (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, um, that, that definitely works. Uh, but sometimes sex, it, it really works. Yep. <laughs> yep. Having sex definitely, um, makes that a little easier. Um, a couple of things. So, you know, whenever we got married again, I just, I don't feel like we went into marriage with the best set of tools for this type of thing, because we went into marriage with just very unrealistic expectations, right. Um, of what this was all going to entail. And, um, you know, frankly, kind of in the beginning, everything was just kind of a, a blur, <laughs> you know, because it all, everything just happened so fast. It's yeah. like, whoa. okay. Yeah. Like suddenly, uh, suddenly you're married and it's like, oh, everything's on the table now. And you're like, wait a second. I don't even know what's yeah. on the table. I don't even know what oh, that means. Hey, we're also having kids. So, uh, <laughs> right. Things out. Yeah. Um, what helped tremendously was just in general, you know, I mean, we've basically said this, but just learning how to be better communicators. Um, and like I was saying before, just learning to be really blunt and open and honest about what our expectations and what our desires were. Um, and just, getting like kind of leaning into the fact that that is a messy, messy process and it's okay that it's messy. Um, but you know, also what helped was like remembering that, you know, when I do talk to this man, I discover that, um, he's not an insatiable sex fiend like my doctor and the whole (laughs) world made me think all men are. Um, you know, but like I had been told that like you have to maintain intimacy during the fertile period and stuff like that. And I'm like, I, and when we tried it and I'm like, so basically like we're doing like my version of foreplay because when I feel deep emotional connection with my husband, I want to have sex. So, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. They're like, they're telling and like all like the touches and the hugs and the kisses and da, 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 da. So it's like, okay, so we just scatter foreplay throughout the day and then go to bed horny and not able to do anything about it. That's (laughs) Um, So what I realized was, is that the emphasis was just wrong. Um, What you got to do is what we figured out we had to do is just like uh, develop that quote unquote language of intimacy when sex is on the table. Mm-hmm. Because then what you do is like all of like the touches and the kisses and the flirting and the deep emotional connection they just become the things that you do. They just become like the natural part of the expression of your relationship in your marriage, not a substitute for sex because mm. nothing is, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, you know, if you talk about like, you know, what helps you get through the abstinence, you know, admitting that nothing is better than sex nothing is going to replace it. Those deep emotional connections that you foster, those are important, but you know, everything that you're doing outside of the bedroom is ultimately going to make what goes on inside the bedroom better, you know? Um, And that the reason why you invest in your relationship outside of the bedroom is so that you can make that time between the sheets, just fireworks right? Um, I mean, not, not that that's the only reason why you're getting to know your spouse. It's like, I just want, I just want a fireworks sex life, babe. That's the only reason why I'm talking to you right now. Obviously I'm not saying that. Um, 
But, but no, like that's, we've all experienced that when you, when you like women, women certainly experience this, I think more than men. I think that men, um, and I've, I've heard several men corroborate this, that they actually feel that deeper emotional connection with their wives through sex. Mm -hmm. Whereas women, um, feel that deep emotional connection through conversation. And then that kind of feeds into, well, now I want to have sex with you. Whereas men are like, I want to have sex with you so that I can connect with you. Right. Um, so, you know, under understanding that it, it's a complementarity, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of people hear that and they're like, oh my gosh, why did God design us that way? And it's like, well, it's because you have to go outside of yourself in order to get to know and love your spouse deeper. Right. But like recognizing kind of, as I said at the, at the beginning of this, that abstinence helps me to maintain a healthy relationship with sex mm-hmm. and it helps me to avoid using my spouse for, you know, just the, the good feels, um, you know, the discipline and the sacrifice of abstinence, it's killing my ego. Oh, yes. And that, that hurts like literal hell. And we all naturally rebel against that. But the death of the ego is the condition of deepening love. Oh, man. Well, before we wrap up, I do just want to touch on what I think is probably the number one most helpful thing through abstinence, which is communication. Um, And something that I have joked about on the podcast before, and I, I, I want to touch, this is why I want to touch on it because I I think it's not fair the way that I've spoken of it before, but I've joked about, if you can talk about cervical mucus with someone, you can talk about anything. And while that might be true, um, I want to make it clear that these conversations are very, very difficult. They are very awkward. Um, and it is okay if you just feel like, you know, you want to jump out of your skin when you're considering having this conversation with your spouse, um, about how you're feeling towards sex or how you're feeling towards abstinence or how you're feeling towards pleasure or anything, anything around sex. And, um, and, and that is really okay, but you need to push through it because the conversation that you can have with your spouse will lead you to deeper intimacy and it will lead you to a better sex life. Eventually, maybe not in the first conversation, maybe not in the 10th conversation. It's it. This is a lifetime of conversations that you need to have with your spouse around sex, because as Emily said it so well, sex is the most intimate part of our marriage. And because it's the most intimate part of our marriage, that is the place where any holes in our marriage are going to be really obvious because we are diving into the most intimate part of our relationship. And so if there are things that aren't quite stable elsewhere, that's going to manifest in our sex life. It will that our sex life does not happen in a vacuum. Um, so I just wanted to really touch on that communication and how important that is. You get a standing ovation from me. (laughs) 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 And, and just, I'm just going to tack on, um, a little humor goes a long way. Yes. Uh, a little humor goes a long way. Like on those long stints of abstinence, there have been times where I have looked at my husband and I've just blurted out, like, I really want to jump you right now. (laughs) 
know? And it's just, there's like, there's just kind of that, like a release. Cause it's like, we are on the struggle bus together. Yes. You know, and it's okay to admit that. And I even, I've even done like, I'm like, babe, the monitor is still reading high, which by the way, that's one of my reasons why I love the clear blue monitor is because I have a scapegoat. <laughs> we have a scapegoat. We have this external object that we can both hate. It's wonderful. It's sanity saving. Um, but I mean, I'm like, babe, I'm so sorry. There's like another high. I'm like, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? How you feeling? <laughs> how you doing? And God bless him. Like he, he has literally never, ever complained once about abstinence. And I'm like, I'm the one who complains, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, a little, a little humor, a little humor goes a long way. Like it's just kind of you both, you both want to jump each other's bones because you both love each other deeply. And that is the natural expression of the depth of love that you experience in a marriage. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with it. Oh, I think that's a fabulous, fabulous place for us to stop. Emily, thank you so much for being here, for sharing, uh, true honesty. Um, I think that is the most important thing in, in these types of conversations is being honest. Um, and I just really appreciate your time and thank you so much. Thanks, Ellen. I, I loved it. This is fun. Thanks so much for listening. If you are interested in connecting with Emily, um, or you are interested in that article that she talked about, links to those are in the show notes. And if you're not already following us on Instagram, please head over to Instagram at charting toward intimacy and find us. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode ideas, uh, you can reach out on Instagram or you can send us an email until next time.